Welcome to The Shape of My Memories. My name is Jerry, and I'll be your host. We all have a history, beginning from the instant we were conceived throughout our childhood while we were being nurtured and taught by our parents right up through this very moment in time, we have been collecting memories. And we will continue to build that data bank of our personal being right up until we take our last breath. And that treasure chest of memories are some of the most valuable and important possessions of our lives. At least they are for me, second only to my wife and daughters. Our memories and the events that created them shaped us into who we are today. The toys we cherished as children, the warm hugs from our parents, high school crushes, and even the first time we voted all served to build our history. And that history nourishes our memories, and those memories fuel our structure, the very shape of who we are. And while many of our memories are good, there are also bad ones. In my 70 years on this earth, I have come to realize that the bad memories helped to shape me just as much as the good ones did, with the added benefit that each and every bad one reminds me of many more good ones. During the show, I will be sharing many of my warmest, and a few of the not-so-much, memories with you, hoping that each of those memories will jog some pleasant recollection up from the depths of your history. I will share these tidbits of my past in no particular order, just speaking of what comes to mind first. And while I truly hope you enjoy each and every story I share with you as much as I enjoy telling them, I am telling them mostly for my own sense of being and so that my wife, my daughters, and the rest of my family will have an idea of how I was shaped into the person I am. When I was born, Harry Truman was the President of the United States. World War II had ended four years earlier and the Korean War had just broken out. Gasoline was a whopping 13 cents per gallon. That's equivalent to 27 cents in today's money. And that price was high because gas was in short supply. Most fuel produced was being allocated to the war effort. A standard postage stamp cost three cents, while airmail varied from six cents to a couple of bucks, depending on the destination. Standard mail traveled long distances by railroad. Airmail was reserved for only the most important of communications. It was 1974 before mail by rail became obsolete. About the time I arrived on the scene, a Snickers bar only came in one size and would set you back five cents, and the price of a bottle of Coca-Cola skyrocketed from a nickel to six cents. I wasn't born in an actual hospital. Because my dad was in the Navy, I had the privilege of coming into this world in the sick bay at North Island Naval Air Station, Coronado. The year after I was born, the sick bay was demolished to make room to lengthen the runway to accommodate newer, larger aircraft. Throughout my years in school, I delighted in telling all my friends that I was born in the middle of a runway. All the big civilian airliners still had propellers. Jet aircraft were new to the skies and only used by the military. There were no interstate highways and about half the roads of the U.S. weren't even paved. My folks had purchased our home two years earlier. We lived at 342 Coronado Avenue in Imperial Beach, California. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath home three blocks from the beach. Dad told me they paid $7,500 for it, brand spanking new. We lived there until I was nine years old. 
To this day, I still drive by every few years just to see how the place is weathered. Somewhere around the mid-60s, they widened Coronado Avenue, so the house lost half its front yard. On one of the more recent trips, I spied a for sale sign in the front yard. Out of curiosity, I called the number listed on the sign and asked the price. It was listed at 650000 When we moved out in 1959, my dad had sold it for 16000 and change, and he thought he made a killing. Of course, that huge asking price was just before the 2008 financial fiasco. One of the earliest memories I have is from when I was around two or three years old. I had been in the front yard riding my tricycle, and when I was called into the house, I left it parked on the driveway. When my dad came home, he pulled into the drive and crunched no more tricycle. I didn't get another bike until Christmas I turned nine. Now when I look back on it, I'm pretty sure he had stopped for a couple of cold ones on the way home. I have two sisters. Both are older than me, one by four years, and the oldest is eight years my senior. My mom wasn't employed, but she worked harder at taking care of the three of us in the house than she would have at any full-time job. My dad, being in the Navy, was gone a lot until he retired after 20 years' service. I was four when he retired. When he first got out of the Navy, he took jobs doing whatever he could to support us. He drove a cab for a while. That didn't pay enough. He was a mail carrier for a short time. He quit that because his feet would hurt so bad. Mail carriers back then actually walked house to house to deliver the mail instead of driving box to box in their little trucks. I really liked the time he spent as a crewman on the Coronado ferry boats because we could ride the ferry from Coronado to downtown San Diego for free, which we did from time to time on warm summer evenings just for the ride. The ferry carried cars and passengers across San Diego Bay to Coronado. I still rode the ferry on weekends after he left that job until it closed when the San Diego Bay Bridge was built. The passenger fare had risen from a dime each way to two bits by then. If you don't know, two bits is 25 cents. The bridge toll was 50 cents each way, but you paid for the round trip when you crossed going into Coronado. They just assumed that if you were going into Coronado, you'd eventually come out. That way, they only needed toll booths and toll takers on the westbound side. Saved a lot of payroll expenses. Those that commuted over the bridge daily could buy ticket books that reduced the round-trip fare to 40 cents. And of course, there were those that tried to beat the system altogether by driving the long way around through Palm City and Imperial Beach, then north on the Silver Strand to Coronado. They would then make their return over the bridge using the eastbound lanes. Didn't pay any tolls that way, but they had to drive an additional 20 or so miles on the westbound trip. The Silver Strand is an isthmus that runs seven miles from Palm City north to Coronado Island. The official name of the road is State Highway 75. On the west side for most of the trip, it's Silver Strand State Beach. On the east side, just opposite the State Beach, there's a community of multi-million dollar condos. And I think there's some single-family homes there also. Very classy places. I wonder if they know that in the 40s and 50s, the land they are sitting on was deposited there in the form of garbage. Yep, that's right. The dump, or landfill as they're called today, for Coronado, Palm City, and Imperial Beach. I know because I made many a Saturday morning jaunt there with my dad to leave our little contribution.
But the coolest job my dad had was working for Convair General Dynamics, where he worked at the Atlas Missile Test Pad in Sycamore Canyon. He worked on the missiles that protected us during the Cold War until the early 1960s. The Atlas was also used in the space program to put John Glenn and some of the other astronauts into space. How great was that? However, my dad's involvement ended when an Atlas missile exploded on the test pad somewhere around 1961 or 62. That was when Convair shut down the operation in Sycamore Canyon and relegated the site to other weapons programs. We had moved by then from Imperial Beach to Paradise Hills. That was during the summer of 1959. I started the third grade that fall. When the Atlas job ended, we struggled for a few years. I was just starting junior high about that time. Three months into my seventh grade year was when JFK was assassinated. My dad sold shoes, tried his hand selling vacuum cleaners door to door, and worked a year to the day, six days a week, as a janitor at the El Cajon Valley Hospital. His take-home pay was $40 a week. Minimum wage had just increased from a dollar to a buck fifteen an hour in California. The rest of the country stayed at a dollar for another year. I was making $12 a week cash, working four hours a day after school at the Paradise Food Liner, which was a little neighborhood corner grocery and deli a block up the street. I didn't earn minimum wage because 11-year-olds weren't legally allowed to work. Pops finally landed a civil service gig as an aircraft instrument mechanic for the Navy. Again, that was at North Island Naval Air Station, where I was born. Talk about full circle. He stayed there until he filed for his social security. My dad had a great work ethic, and I am proud to say he passed that down to me. Even though you needed a work permit to work if you were 16 or older and you weren't supposed to work at all if you were under 16, I managed to stay employed somewhere from the time I was 10. First at the food liner, then at the Chevron station across the street. When I turned 16, I got my work permit and took my first minimum wage employment washing dishes on the scullery line at the galley at 32nd Street Naval Station. From my earliest memories, we were a typical working-class family. We always had the things we needed, and sometimes we got a little extra. We even had a telephone. I remember when I started school, my mom drilled our phone number into my head. Our number was Gridley 48181. It was a party line, and no, that didn't mean a perpetual good time was in the mix. A party line meant that several homes shared the same line. When you picked it up, you had to listen for a little bit to hear if any other family that shared the line was using it. If they were, you were supposed to put it back on the hook and wait your turn. Needless to say, everyone on the same party line always knew everybody else's business. We got our first television the year before I started kindergarten. It was a used, round, black-and-white screen. Color TVs didn't show up until the mid-60s. We got three channels, 6, 8, and 10, all three of which went off the air at 1 a.m. We always had a car, sometimes two, even though Dad was the only driver until us kids got our licenses. My mom didn't get her license until I was grown. She only got it to prove she could. The first time it expired, she never renewed it. The first car I remember was a 1948 Buick four-door sedan. That was the one that got my tricycle. 
I remember it mostly because when I was around six, Dad used to let me crawl under it with him when he worked on it. I don't know why he got rid of that car because he really loved it. But in 1957, he sold it and bought a used early 50s Cadillac. I thought that was the coolest car because the gas tank filler was hidden behind the left tilt-up taillight. He got rid of it the first time it broke down and he found out the parts for the Caddy were four times as expensive as the same parts for a Chevy. Just before I turned eight, Dad and I went for a ride in the Caddy. He pulled into Acme Chevrolet on Broadway in Chula Vista. Two hours later, we drove out in a brand new 1958 Chevy Biscayne four-door sedan, cream over blue. It sported a 283 V8 and a Power Glide automatic. He paid the staggering price of $1,853 for that car. I remember because I couldn't even fathom that much money. That was the first car he bought brand new. It was also the car I learned to drive in. Of course, I learned to drive way before I was old enough for a license. Dad really enjoyed fishing. On weekends that he could spare the time, we would head out on trips to the local fishing pond. When I was about 12, he started letting me drive a little on the back roads that didn't have a lot of traffic. Of course, a lot of traffic to Dad meant another car anywhere on the road. But quite often, I would get to drive a mile or two before we would encounter that other car. One day, I had a friend over to the house, and Dad was working in the yard. He decided he would let me impress my friend. The car was backed into the driveway, so he told me to pull it out, turn it around, and drive it forward back into the driveway. I was so excited that my friend and I jumped into the 58, checked for traffic, and then pulled out of the drive to the left. I stopped, put the car in reverse, and started backing up so I could pull forward into the driveway. I heard the horn honking just in time to stop about three inches from backing into the car that had turned left from the side street behind me. I looked over at my dad and he was looking straight down at the ground, holding his head with his left hand and the shovel with his right, waiting for the crash. I calmly looked in the rear view, waved my apology to the driver behind me, and pulled into the driveway. I parked the car and got out, expecting to receive a real chastising from my dad. Till the day he died, he never said a word about it. Well, I think we'll end this episode here. Thanks for listening. Hope you can join me again. Till then, be blessed, stay safe, and I pray you'll always have oil in your lamp.